First John chapter 4 today, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 12. Why don't we just get right into this text? Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your word, we plead with you for your help, for your grace and mercy to help us to truly grasp your word, that it would go below, go below the, the level of understanding and actually penetrate into our hearts. And it would not only become our profession, but our heart's conviction. And I pray that it would transform our lives. Only you can do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I know the promise of your word, Father, that you said if we who are evil are able to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we ask you, Father, with all kinds of confidence and gratitude, that you would give to us your Holy Spirit to accomplish the things through your word in these moments in our lives that you meant to accomplish when your spirit first moved John to write these words almost 2,000 years ago. Fulfill your purpose in us and help us to love as you have loved. In Jesus' name. Amen. We are for the third time now looking at one of these love tests. We remember that there are three kinds of tests which are frequently, repeatedly administered in John's first letter. We have the doctrinal test, testing us for faith in God's Son. The moral test, testing us for obedience to God's commandments. And the relational test, testing us for love of God's people. And for the third time now, we are taking this love test. And this is the most lengthy of uh, the tests for love. Um, we have 15 love-focused verses that conclude chapter 4. We're just going to take six of those today. But uh, I've been repeating myself since we opened up this letter on the 1st of February that John spends so much time of his letter, in his letter, repeating himself. I've been saying that from the beginning. All of this repetition. In life and death matters, I can think of a couple situations, let me say, when you should feel very free to repeat yourself. In life and death matters, repeat yourself. For example, if you see me about to accidentally die, Feel free to say something. If there's a, a 
time uh, window there to say something, say something, say it loud, and repeat yourself until I pull back, stop, duck, whatever I need to do to live, say something, and repeat it. And uh, another situation. If I'm stubborn, and I am, and I'm slow to believe, got that covered too, check that off, in those situations, with people like me, repeat yourself. As we say, repetition uh, leads to learning, right? That's how we get something. So in life and death situations, and at times when we're, we're dealing with people and with hearts that are stubborn and, and hard and slow to believe, repeat yourself. Now let's think about John and his context, his situation, and what he writes about. John is dealing with life and death matters here in his first letter. When he calls on us to believe in the name of God's Son and to test ourselves for obedience and for love, he is dealing with life and death matters because he says it's the difference between abiding in life and abiding in death. Belonging to God, being of God, and being of the devil. He says it's a matter of knowing God and and not knowing Him. So very clearly, he's dealing with matters of life and death, so it's no wonder, and we should be thankful, that John repeats himself. And of course, these matters of life and death are spiritual. And in spiritual matters of life, and in matters of spiritual death, spiritually speaking, we're all slow. We're all stubborn. We all tend to drift. Nobody drifts into love and faith and obedience. We, we drift the other way. We're stubborn and we're slow. And so John repeats himself over and over, and we should be thankful for it. And I want to give you an illustration from uh, Friday morning of why John's repetition is so necessary and why we should be thankful. Um, Friday morning, I was in the middle of very, honestly, earnest prayer that God would give me a heart of love like His Son has a heart of love. I was confessing all of my self, you know, fill in the blank, and, and pleading that God would give me this heart when Cherie called, interrupted me in the middle of my prayer. Cherie called, and, and her report over the phone, I'm not going to get into the details, aggravated me. And it was okay for me to not like the situation and to want to change. That was okay. But what wasn't okay were the feelings that were rising in my heart and being expressed in my tone with her. Feelings that... (laughs) Rhonda's nodding at me like, you should know better. (laughs) Feelings that uh, I think were petty and... And self-concerned. And, uh, you know, I was just I was ticked off, but in the, the unrighteous kind of ticked off. And when we were finally done talking and, you know, the conversation ended with everything just fine, I fell back down on my knees and said, See? See what I'm talking about? I know you see this. This heart of mine that is so quick to self-whatever, pity, assertion, Concern, ishness, all of that. 
I need your spirit to do a work in my heart to change me, to make me like your son. We all need that help. There's a third reason, I think, why John is so repetitive with this. We have the the urgency, the, the life and death nature of what he's talking about here. And then the fact that he's dealing with hearts that are slow and stubborn and all of that, you know, uh, quick to deceive ourselves and slow to believe God. But there's something else too, another reason why John repeats himself so frequently in this book. I told you very early in our series that John, the way that he progresses forward is in circles. And you can see by the motion of my hand, when you progress forward in circles, you come back to where you have already been as you go forward. And this is what John does with his teaching. He revisits truths that he has already laid down. And he strengthens those truths. And he expands them and he builds them to new heights. So by the time we come to love for the third time, we're beginning to realize, I hope, that there is more to love than we ever thought. And I think that you're going to see as we go through these six verses slowly and meditatively that love is deeper than we ever realized. And it's my prayer that that God would today help us to realize the depth of love more in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives and in our church life. Because it is impossible to fulfill this command without this love taking over the church. It's impossible to fulfill this command in our personal, individual lives without each other. Let's get into it. Back into verse 7. John says, Beloved, let us love. Let us love. Here we have the call to love. And we're going to see this call taken up again in verse 11. You can think of the call as the the bookends of this paragraph. But he starts off with agapitoi agapomen. Beloved, let us love. And it's urgent. The command comes urgently to us. But at the same time, it comes very tenderly. John is a fellow selfishite, put it that way. A a fellow natural-born citizen of the kingdom of self, where self rules on the throne, just like myself and just like yourself. And as a fellow struggler in the, in the fight to love, in the walk of love, John is really coming alongside us, putting his arm around us and pleading with us to love. And not just, not just one-on-one, But he is really talking to the whole congregation. He says, let us love one another. This is a corporate command. This is a command for the whole family that, again, you cannot fulfill on your own. I mean, so I would say for for all of those people who aren't here, who fail to meet together on a regular basis with the people of God, I would ask those people, how in the world do you think that in your Christian life you can fulfill this command to love one another apart from the church? 
It's true. Let us love one another. Then John gets into the reasoning. We need some good, compelling reasons to love. And so John is going to talk about love's eternal origin and its ultimate historic display. He's going to talk about the origin of love and the revelation of love in history. He says, let us love one another because you see, verse 7, love is from God. The origin of love, the life source of love, the meaning and the sacredness of love are not something that we pick up from culture with its revolving door notions of love. All of the notions of love that the culture picks up from pop songs and whatever is the the latest young adult novel craze and from Hallmark melodrama and all of that, all of those things where maybe culture only begins to scratch the surface of a single dimension of love, maybe, that's not where we understand love. It's not how love gets its meaning and its source. The, the origin, the life source, the, the sacredness, the whole meaning of love is found in God. Without God, love does not exist. The world will claim that I was just, we were as a family um, watching this PBS special earlier in the week about uh, love in the animal kingdom between different species, you know, and it was it was cute and all of that, and it was emotional, and there was this uh, goat and a horse. <laughs> there was a duck and a tortoise, a dog and a deer, dog and a cheetah. Can't remember what all else, but anyway. And, and it was all, you know, it was emotional and everything, and it was beautiful in a way to see this companionship between animals of two different species carried on over years. But then, in the midst of all of that beauty in God's creation, they make the explicit point that all of this love and this compassion and and tenderness we feel is encoded by evolution into our DNA. So, why, why, uh, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to talk about how beautiful it is and then to say that it's all a part of our you know, robotic hard wiring and just a bunch of chemicals interacting and so on and so forth. Love is from God. Without God, love does not exist. Now our culture, our world can express love truly. This is not to take away from genuine human affection or one person laying down their life self-sacrificially for another. But every time that someone in the world loves truly, they are borrowing from God. They are borrowing from the, the Christian truth and the Christian ethic and probably crediting humanity in the process or evolution or whatever they want to attribute it to. But John is telling us that we are to go to a higher plane. And our love is to be, I'm borrowing this term, theocentric. It is to be God-centered. He calls us to ground our love in God's perfection. Love is from God. He is the origin and the life source of love. Now, in the middle of the reasoning for love, we also have this test. Something that we all need to, to take. We need to, I know we've been over this. A lot 
through 1 John. But we need to take these tests when we come to them. So the latter part of verse 7 and the beginning of 8. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Now, again, I want to keep a crucial distinction before you. Look at the specific wording. And I, I hope that your translation reflects these tenses. Whoever loves, present tense, has been born of God. That's perfect tense. That means in the past. You do not love to be born of God. You love because you have been born of God. Love is not the requirement to being born again. Love is the inevitable result and the evidence that you have been born again. Born from above. Born of God. So anyone, it's very clear. It's very plain. I mean, nobody could say, well, I, I, don't, I don't believe what you're saying because I think it's more complex than that. It's here. Anyone who does not love does not know God. It's plain. It's clear. It's simple. A little child, as long as they can communicate in English, can understand this much. The knowledge of God, true spiritual knowledge of God, and the love of God's people go together. They are two components of one inseparable whole. They go together. They will always go together. And so if knowing God doesn't move you to obey Him and to love His people, then you don't actually truly know God. The one who has the life of God within will pour the love of God out. A loveless child of God would be like a lightless, heatless sun. And if there was such a thing, you would look at it, this lightless, heatless sun, and you would think, I think we should call it something else. And it's the same with the children of God. We must love as evidence that we are truly His children. Everyone who has the life of God within will pour the love of God out. That's the test. In the middle of the reasoning, and I want to get back, John gets back to the reasoning very quickly at the end of verse 8. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Do you know why? I was just thinking about this this morning, so it might come out kind of jumbled. But I was thinking about why the culture doesn't know what love is and, and why they don't know God at the same time. And I believe that one of the reasons is that they've actually flipped this backwards so that it doesn't say in their minds, God is love. Rather, they say love is God. And in that case... If love is God, God does not tell us what true love is. Love tells us what God is. 
and what he does and what he must do. Because they have it flipped. They don't say God is love, but love is God. So God doesn't define love. Love defines God. And that's why they, they project onto God that he's just a big, fat teddy bear in the sky. Or Santa Claus or a vending machine. You just plug in one quarter of your good works and you expect to get you know something awesome back. Because it's all wrong. It's flipped upside down. The Bible says God is love. But the Bible also says God is spirit. And it, as it says in 1 John 1.5, God is light. And it also says in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. And I was mentioning this in our Sunday school class before this hour, that our God, as Jonathan Edwards said, is a God of diverse excellencies. And we saw that in the passage we were studying this morning in, in Revelation uh, 7, I think that's the passage it was, where it says that the Lamb will be their shepherd. And here, here we see it in these diverse perfections that God is light and God is a consuming fire and God is love. But all of these perfections of God are not at odds with each other. They all work together in perfect, beautiful symmetry leading to deeper and deeper worship on our part. But let's put them together. John Stott is actually the one who does this for us and I just really appreciate the way he said it. He who is love is light and fire as well. Far from condoning sin, his love has found a way to expose sin because he is light and to consume sin because he is fire without destroying the sinner, but rather saving him because he is love. Our God is love. He is the origin, the life source. He gives to love its sacredness and all of its meaning. Further, in verses 9 and 10, in looking at the reasoning for us to love, we talk about its revelation. We've looked at its origin. It's from God, and God himself is love. But now we look at the ultimate historic display of the love of God in time and space. And it comes with Jesus. In heaven, there is not a factory where a bunch of angels are working on an assembly line, putting love together to be a resource that God can tap into and use. Love is not a resource at God's disposal. Love is his essence. And love is not a possession that he takes up that's outside of himself. Love is God's inmost perfection. So ever before there was some kind of revelation, even before creation, there was love. When all there was was God, all was love. God is the source of love. And therefore, eternally, there was a stream of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the triune God. And then in creation, God manifested His love. He made a good creation. And all creation knows that God is good. It is evident in the things that He has made that He is good and that He is wise and He is powerful. And God is love. We know that even before Jesus came up, uh, came into the earth. We knew that 
God abounds in steadfast love. But we didn't know the height of love until Jesus was lifted up on the cross. That is the greatest display of love that there has ever been and ever will be. When the Son came in the flesh, love came in the flesh. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. We talked about this a little bit last week. I just want to repeat myself, like John does, a little bit. Um, you remember we were talking about how the, the Father and the Son have this perfect love relationship between them. And when Jesus talks about the Father's love for him in the Gospel of John, he always frames it in terms of what the Father gave him. When he wants to say, listen, I am sent by God and approved by God. I, I am from God. Look at the Father's love for me. He always talks about what the Father gave him. And so the Son gave, says that the Father gave him life in himself. The Son says that the Father gave all things into his hands. All authority over all flesh. The Spirit without measure. And to people. The Father loves the Son. And therefore the Father gives to the Son. And in that way, the Son sees the Father's love. And now we have seen the Father's love. Because the Father of love gave the Son of His love to the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. I just want to encourage you to download eSword on your computer. If you don't have some kind of tool to do a word search through the Bible, put as your parameters the Gospel of John and put give, gave, giving, and so on, and then put in your search thing any of the words, and you'll see all the, the uses of give, between the Father and the Son in the Gospel of John. Study through all of the things that the Father gave the Son as the sign of His love. And then fix your eyes again for the billionth time in your life on John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And you will be moved all over again. In this is love. Verse 10. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is there a greater love in all the world than this? I, I was thinking over the last couple of days, what you would need, what there would have to be present for there to possibly be a greater love than God has shown to us in the gift of His Son. And I, I just came up with five things that together say there's no way. Okay, So number one, if you want a greater love than what the Father has shown to us in the gift of His Son, you would need a greater God of greater heaven. Two, you would need a greater Son of greater glory. 
And you would need three creatures of greater privilege given greater gifts than the image of God that we bear and this earth that we have to rule and this communion with God that we have from the beginning to enjoy. Okay? Number four, in these greater creatures of greater privilege, there must be a greater rebellion opening a greater chasm than that which is opened by our unbelief our ingratitude, our lovelessness, and our siding with the devil. And for greater love than number five, you would need a greater misery of greater darkness and agony taken on than the beloved son of glory took on when our sin he bore and our death he died. Is there a greater God than our God? Is there a greater son than the son of his love, the Lord Jesus Christ? And are there creatures of greater privilege than to bear God's image who rebelled with a greater rebellion than ours? And did any so high come so low to pay such a great price? There is no greater love than this love. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. You want to understand what love is? Then look at what God has done through His Son, Jesus, who was the propitiation for our sins. And this is love. In the person of Jesus, on the ground, on the move, and on the cross. This is love. God sending and Jesus coming. Jesus humbling Himself and Jesus serving us. Jesus laying down his body, bleeding and dying and propitiating the wrath of God against our sins. That's love. And so verse 11, beloved, John is pleading with all of those who want to keep to themselves and all of those who are slow of heart and all of those who are naturally selfish, I fit all of the above. He pleads, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, if we are born of Him and we know Him truly, we will love God's people. We will. How could we not? Uh, What are the reasons that we could possibly give now that we have seen what God has done for us through His Son? What reasons could we come up with that would excuse us from not loving? I mean, maybe that people are beneath us? Could Could you imagine in eternity past, in the council of the triune God, the three persons of the Trinity talking over the plan of salvation? Do you think we should really do this? Well, you have to think about what's going to be required. The Son is going to have to take on human flesh and die at their hands. Do you think we should do this? Don't you think that they're a little bit beneath us? And will we, if God obviously did not say anything remotely close, will we talk like that? Will we think like that or act like that, that people are beneath us? Why don't we love people? Are we qualitatively different from people than God is qualitatively different from us? 
I mean, we, we would have to, it would have to be, well, I made them and that ingrate turned against me. I mean, that could be the only thing that would excuse us from not loving. But even though that was true in God, that he made us and we, the ingrates, turned against him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, yet God sent his son freely, willingly, gladly. And Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, said, Father, I thank you. Do we know more of people's faults than God knows? That we can't sympathize with them? Are those faults of theirs that we do know more offensive to us than they are offensive to God that we won't love? See, if I think that my class and my smarts and my ethic put me on a different level than others, I worthy, they unworthy, I lovely, they ugly, I don't have the least clue about the gap between me and God, which God closed when He gave His Son a body and His Son laid it down on the cross. And so if, if, you, if, there, if there is anyone here who won't love, who doesn't want to love, I would just say, who in God's world do you think that you are? Verse 12. And by the way, I have been on the receiving end of the love of this church so much and so generously that I don't know who that could be for. But just in case. Here is the end of our love. Verse 12. I mean, this is the goal. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, I have always struggled to make sense of the two clauses, the relationship between the two clauses that make up verse 12. How do they fit? No one has ever seen God on one hand. We love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. How do those two, two truths meet and, and fit together? Lord willing, I think that I get it now. Because there is a, a truth common to Scripture all throughout that says God is spirit. God is invisible. No one has seen him. No one can see him as a sinner and live. That truth is everywhere. of The invisible nature of God. But there's only two places where that truth is phrased just like this. No one has ever seen God. Not surprisingly, the other place is in the Gospel of John. At the end of that theologically loaded and beautiful prologue to John's Gospel, verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1. In verse 18 it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And then this verse, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And I believe that if we're going to interpret verse 12 of 1 John 4 correctly, 
we need to understand its relationship to John 1.18. Because John, I believe, puts those two statements. No one has ever seen God in these, these two places, or one statement in two places, to help us understand. God is invisible to human eye. The Son of God, who is ever God Himself and ever with God the Father, He is the revelation of God. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. If we will know God, we have to know Him through His Son. In fact, you remember Philip said in John 14, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus, it sounds like he was perplexed. He said, Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? Have you been with me for so long and don't know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the Word of God who discloses and narrates and reveals and messages God to the world. He is the living, breathing message of God to humanity. And so over His Son, God the Father declares, this is who I am. Now, God sent His Son to be the revelation of His love. And so we have been born again born of God and born of heaven from above to live through Him. As it, as it says in 1 John 4, 9, God sent His Son that we might live through Him. Right? So, no one has ever seen God. Jesus made Him known. No one has ever seen God. We see again 1 John 4. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected that is brought to completion in us. Do you get it? Are you starting to get it? The, the truth and the bigness of this truth. God, who is invisible light, sent His Son to reflect that light and make it visible through His love. In fact, I'll say it the way that Robert Yarbrough says it. God's invisible light takes visible shape when God's Son reflects His love. And, and what, he, what this is saying is God's invisible light takes visible shape when God's People reflect His love. Jesus Himself said, if the world will know who I am, you must love one another. He said, by this, all the world, all the world will know that you are my disciples. They will know who I am through you when you love one another. We make Jesus known through our love. And then Jesus prayed in John 17, he prayed that we would be one, like the Father and the Son are one, so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son. Of course, oneness has everything to do with love. Our unity has everything to do with love. It's through our love for one another that the world knows, yes, God did send Jesus into the world. What I am saying to you is that now that we are sent by Jesus, like God the Father sent Jesus, we are the living, breathing message of God 
to the world just as Jesus was before us. We are love on the ground. We are love incarnate. We are the love of God. And as we love one another, it is God's witness to the world. If I had a nickel for every time that somebody said, I wish that God would put a message in the clouds just to tell everybody very clearly, spell it out, you know, big white fluffy clouds. This is who I am. That would be great. Or if there was some kind of looping video in the sky, you know, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said like that, I would have like seven to ten nickels, which isn't very much. But haven't you heard that too or thought that? Wouldn't it be nice if God did that, put a message, just a looping video, and, and the whole world could see it, and there would be no you know, comprehensible reason why anybody would ever deny him or deny what he is like or try to change things up? But do you see what God has done? He sent his son, and through his son he said, this is who I am, this is my love, and this is my life. Now the triune God of heaven looks down and directs the attention of the world to his people in the church. And he says, world, this is who I am. This is my love. This is my life. This is who I am told you at the beginning that there is more to love than you realize. This is big. This is huge. I don't know what your plans are for today, what you want for your career, whatever. This is bigger. This is bigger. This gives meaning to the church. This is who we are. This is our life. We are the living, breathing message of God to the world. Beloved, John says, let us love one another. Because love originates in God. It's from God. God is love. He is the origin and the life source and the meaning. It is God who sent it. It is the Son who enfleshed it and bled it. And now in this day, God in us and we in Him, as brothers and sisters together, by our one another love, we are the revelation of who God is to the world. Do you want the world to envision God? Then love God's people. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are so full of self-love. Self-love consumes us, it drives us, it gives us our ambitions and our dreams and it motivates us. Lord, we don't want that life anymore. We know that through Jesus, through the, the Spirit of Christ, you live in us. You have taken us over. We are new creations. We have been born again. We have been born to this. We have been born to love. So God... Give us hearts after your Son. 
Make us to love as he loved. Help us to lay our lives down for one another. And I thank you, my Father, that for every failure of love, all of our lovelessness, all of our sin, all of our guilt, I thank you that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. You have no more wrath and no more condemnation for us. We are now free in forgiveness, and we are free to love. We praise you. Bless your name. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.